is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, the daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, but maybe not ourselves all that much. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting KNX In-Depth. We dig deep, ask the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu, if you think getting COVID is bad enough, what if you got the flu at the same time? It's called Fluorona, one of the dumber sounding disease names. <laughs> a testing company, it is, it's just a dumb sounding name. A testing company found the first case here in L.A. County of an unlucky someone testing positive for both. So we will go in depth. Schools in Chicago closing again. The teachers union there voting to go back to remote learning because of the Omicron surge. Will the same thing start happening right here in California? And should we really still be focusing on cases when deciding to shut things down? A growing number of doctors are saying no. The commentary you don't hear other places. This is a dumb-sounding disease. (laughs) It is a dumb-sounding disease. I can't help it. It is. Tomorrow, the one-year anniversary of the insurrection at the Capitol, will go in-depth into what law enforcement and Homeland Security have learned since then and if they're worried about a similar event coming up in the near future. And we'll talk to a former gun industry exec who was a rising star before he got out of the business, turned on it, out with a new book that slams the industry, accusing it of fostering things like racism and political extremism. So let's start with Fluorona. Dr. Timothy Brewer is professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. uh, Doctor, thanks for being back with us. It is a dumb-sounding name for a disease, isn't it? Fluorona? I I totally agree with you. I'm I'm good with coronavirus and influenza. I think we can handle that. Okay. So it it is kind of self-explanatory. It's somebody who gets the flu, influenza, and coronavirus infection at the same time. How much of a concern is that really? So the concern is that both of these viruses can cause serious disease, but there's no concern that this is somehow new or novel or different. In the original outbreak in Wuhan City, they actually uh, tested 213 SARS-CoV-2 infected patients between January and March of 2020, and 45% of them, or 97, were co-infected with influenza A. So I'm not sure why anybody is surprised that two respiratory viruses that co-circulate at the same time of year can cause co-infection. Should people who maybe get both be extra worried? I mean, I imagine your immune system is having a hard enough time dealing with one, but now you've got both. So interesting, the data on that are actually mixed. So the the best data were actually published last month. There was a meta-analysis where they looked at 12 different studies, about 1,800 people who were co-infected with SARS-CoV-2 and influenza, about 9,000 people who just had SARS-CoV-2, and there was really no risk either in death or hospitalization ending up in an ICU or on a mechanical ventilator. However, that having been said, there is some data out of the United Kingdom where they looked at 58 co-infected individuals and they compared them with people with SARS, and they found at least among those 58 individuals, there was a higher mortality rate with with co-infection. 
Okay, so for those people who are so inclined to panic and hit the panic button, which one do you panic the most about if you have both? Uh, do you hit the panic button because your doctor says you got the flu and you hit the, the button because of the flu or because you have the COVID or both? So so panic is usually never the right response to but, any but problem. You're right, <laughs> but, it, but it is what a lot of but people do. But it is do. the response for so many yeah. <laughs> Right, right. And, but we clearly are, are jumping into, into panic mode. So uh, the, the short answer is it depends on, on who you are. So both diseases are more likely to cause problems in the elderly, in people who have comorbid disease, particularly heart and lung disease, are immunocompromised or who are overweight. So those are the individuals who should be reaching out to their healthcare providers because we actually have treatments now for both viruses. And so they should be getting in touch with their healthcare providers and finding out what do they need to look out for and to do. Do you think there's people out there that have kind of forgotten about the flu? Because we didn't really have it last year, and we're so concerned with COVID. One of our reporters has a story today, and, and he's got a quote from somebody saying, you know what, people keep testing negative, but they feel so bad, and then they wonder why, and they go, oh, right, it's the flu. <laughs> no, no, you're exactly right. To put it in perspective, the CDC estimated that we had approximately about 2,500 or so hospitalizations from influenza last winter. In a typical winter, you would expect somewhere between 200 and 400,000 hospitalizations from influenza across the country. So SARS-CoV-2 definitely displaced influenza last year because of all the things we do to protect ourselves against SARS-CoV-2 work for influenza. So physical distancing, mask wearing, staying home when you're sick, washing your hands, will protect you against influenza as well as SARS-CoV-2. And needless to say, but I'll say it anyway, people should be getting both the flu shot and the COVID shots, right? Definitely. So the single most important thing you can do to protect yourself and those around you to either virus is to be vaccinated. And if you're already vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2 and eligible for a booster, getting a booster will help protect you against Omicron. Dr. Timothy Brewer, professor of epidemiology, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Schools in Chicago are now shut down to in-person learning. The teachers union there voted to go back to remote learning because of the rising number of COVID cases. Now, will that create momentum to close schools again here in California? With us is Jeff Freitas, president of the California Federation of Teachers. They represent more than 120,000 educational employees in the state. Jeff, thanks for being with us. So is the cold wind from Chicago going to blow our way and force the closure of schools? Well, good good afternoon, and, and thank you for this opportunity. We uh, luckily have had the rain um, join us in the, in the snow <laughs> um, in, this, in this drought uh, state, so uh, we are happy about that. Um, we are working with the governor. We are working with our school districts as much as we can. Um, and our priorities are to keep schools open and safe. And, that, and that's the connection there, open and safe. And uh, there, um, there may be situations in which uh, school districts need to look at alternatives. Um, but our priority, uh, working with our locals, local leaders, look, working with our districts, school districts, uh, making sure that the opportunities for students are there and uh, and we were also working with the governor and the governor released a statement with us signing on to it 
uh, just a couple of weeks ago that we are focused on trying to keep our schools open and safe. But the priority is also the safety there. Okay, so if I'm a parent, I'm hearing both those things, and it doesn't seem like it's a total, yes, we're going to keep them open, because if safety means they have to close, then they've got to close again or go back to online learning. So what are the levels where it's deemed unsafe? Um, so th- there are uh, situations. Of, the governor has put out uh, programs throughout the, the, the state to work with the county health offices to, to look at what's going on in the districts, um, what the case rates are, what the um, absenteeism um, in terms of employees and what the absenteeism of the students. And, and we need to provide that education where and meet the students where they are. Um, there, there are no particular benchmarks because we're not trying to um, have a remote situation. We're trying to keep these open. Um, so we're leaving it up to the experts in the medical field um, to make those decisions. So there are many, They've the, the governor and the state uh, health department has increased and boost, uh, boosted the number of people to do this at each of the county levels to go in and investigate what's going on. So uh, again, leaving it up to uh, those medical professions to see um, if there is a situation, I haven't heard of any situation since we've opened up in the fall where schools have closed um, in the state of California. Um, and um, we're working with uh, those agencies and those local school boards um, and those school agencies to make those right decisions. Um, some school districts have not opened this week. Um, and so the, uh, and that was on the, the natural. Those were calendars that they created hmm. uh, well before the COVID situation. They, they took three weeks off during winter break and those were those decisions and they are finding that they are coming back or or being able to plan more safely after um, during this particular week the ones that opened this week and we saw san francisco are having more problems because we are finding that there are high rates of, of covid cases among our educators among the school workers and it's making it very difficult to staff and that's what a situation so um, where we're the, the union is focused on keeping the schools open. So here, here Jeff, here's where I think parents get confused, because I think they, they look at, say, these two cities, Chicago and Los Angeles. Transmission of COVID, uh, especially the Omicron variant, pretty high in both places. Both have very large school districts, right? And yet one city, Chicago, chooses to go one way, schools shut. The other, say, Los Angeles, open. And I think parents get confused and they think, well, we're all people. We all are subject to the same uh, repercussions from an illness. Why these two very different approaches? Um, I can speak to L.A. because that's in California. Um, I don't know the true relationship in Chicago, but I can tell you in L.A. that the school district, the administration and the, the, the educators and the unions in L.A. have been working hard to work together on this. Um, they have, ever since the beginning, had a testing program, a regular testing program program for educators and students. Um, and they have, it, have had that in place. Uh, the governor has worked with the school district to get, um, uh, I think we're looking to get uh, enough tests to get a, a testing in program and to help distribute that. And that's what they're working together on in LA. What I'm hearing and reading, like everybody else in the news, is that that was not working in Chicago. There were benchmarks that they were trying to do to provide to make sure that testing, masking, and vaccinations were in place to provide the safest education system. And and, and from what I was reading, I'm not in the situation there in Illinois, um, but what I was reading is that was not working um, with the leadership of that school district, um, which is the mayor of Chicago. In LA, 
they were definitely working and are working very uh, tirelessly with the school district um, to make sure that everything's in place to have a safe return. Jeff Freitas, president of the California Federation of Teachers. A little bit later on, we are going to be talking to the author of a new book that blasts the gun industry, accusing it of creating racism, extremism. And that author, there's a twist, he has inside knowledge. He used to be a gun industry executive. Right now, though, the Grammys here in L.A. postponed because of the surge of COVID cases. This comes after Dr. Fauci recently said the focus of the response now should be on the number of people in the hospitals rather than on the caseload. He's joining a growing list of doctors and healthcare experts who've been saying basically the same thing. Dr. Monica Gandhi, one of those doctors, has been saying this for uh, some time. Infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. Dr. Gandhi, thanks for being back on the show. So, yeah, with this variant, right, it spreads so fast and so many people are probably going to end up getting it. Are the caseload numbers what we should be looking at instead of the severe outcomes, right? People who do end up being hospitalized. So, you know, I think the cases were tremendously important before vaccines, but in things, and especially in the case of Omicron, which is spreading so, so fast, we really have to think about why did we even worry about cases before? Why? Because people could get sick, people could be in the hospital. So now with vaccines and Omicron spreading so much, if we focus on hospitalizations and deaths as our metric of success, we can see that highly vaccinated regions like you down in L.A., up, up, up here in the Bay Area, um, we're actually doing very well in terms of keeping our hospitalizations low. And that is really what we were trying to prevent the entire time. So is it just laziness that, that we all kind of just stick with this, you know, reporting of there are, you know, 9 billion, you know, cases today and another 9 billion expected tomorrow when... We're all the, setting records. So, yeah, we're all yeah. setting, right. I mean, it, it's really sort of meaningless at this point is what you're saying. So why do we keep doing it? I think we do it because there was still this idea in some people's minds that we could contain the virus. And it actually is really um, not anyone's fault that we couldn't contain the virus, but the virus itself. For properties, it has animal reservoirs. It has a long infectious period. It looks like other respiratory pathogens, and we don't get sterilizing immunity from the vaccine. So those four properties means that it's destined to be endemic, to be still with us, to not be eradicated. But I think that the case numbers people are still focusing on because they're hoping we can contain it um, and eradicate it, but we can't. Not because we didn't try, but because of the nature of the virus. You and I, Charles, were talking off the air just a second ago about yeah. the numbers are probably actually so much higher because sure. how many of us actually have had a home test? And where does that get reported to? Nowhere. Nowhere but Nowhere. you and right. your immediate Nowhere. family. So it's probably way more than even the records we're setting. That's correct. So that's the other reason not to focus on case counts is they're unreliable because it depends on you know, the fact that health departments don't track rapid antigen tests at home, and then some places aren't testing as much, some places are testing more, some places have mass testing sites, some don't. All of that put together means cases are becoming less meaningful. But what is meaningful is, are we preventing people from getting sick? And yes, with the vaccines, we are. You know, we, we are also now in a very sort of strange uh, place, I think, with the pandemic, because I've actually heard people who are fully vaccinated, have boosters, and they haven't yet, to their knowledge anyway, uh, contracted COVID. And they actually are asking the question, why not? And they kind of are almost jealous of friends of theirs who were vaccinated who have it because they think it's some kind of a badge of honor. Are they destined to get it eventually or maybe not? I think that everyone will be exposed 
to this very rapidly transmissible virus. Um, it would be hard not to be unless you're um, really just don't go anywhere and, and always wear N95 masks, even if you do. It, it's, it's pretty, it's very transmissible. The lucky thing is we've been vaccinated. We've been boosted. We are protected against severe disease. Unvaccinated uh, adults, uh, it's unfortunate, but they have had the opportunity to get the vaccine. And luckily, it's more, um, uh, it's less virulent, the Omicron variant. We also know that if you get Omicron on top of your vaccination and booster, um, it boosts your immunity even more. In fact, you get broad neutralizing antibodies against all the other variants and a stronger T-cell response. So it almost serves as a booster. It kind of refreshes your immunity, actually. So it, it's hard not to get exposed to it. It depends on... Uh, you know, New York, if you looked at New York this last, over the last month, I think the great majority of the population got exposed. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The anniversary of the Capitol Hill insurrection is tomorrow. Congress marking the event. The president, the vice president, will head to the Capitol to speak. whole thing was a wake-up call for national security officials and law enforcement. Now, they've been accused of not being prepared enough for the riot. So what have they learned in the years since? Could extremist groups get away with something like that again? With us is John Cohn, Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis at the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks for being with us. So how prepared uh, is everybody on this anniversary date coming up tomorrow? Well, it's nice to be with you um, to talk about uh, this important issue. Uh, You know, over the past year, we've made significant improvements, uh, both in the national capital region, but also nationally, uh, in how we evaluate threats associated with this issue, uh, and how we take that information and incorporate it into our operational planning. So as we sit here today, uh, you know, approaching the one-year anniversary of January 6th, what I can tell you is that we've improved, dramatically improved and expanded our ability to gather, analyze, and share threat-related information and intelligence, particularly looking at that information or intelligence that may be uh, out there on online platforms. Uh, we've improved our ability to use that intelligence to inform our operational planning. Our lines of communication between the federal government, state, and local law enforcement are dramatically improved, and our operational coordination is improved as well. So, you know, over the past several weeks, I've been engaged in a number of meetings with senior officials at the Capitol Hill Police, the U.S. Capitol Police, uh, the Park Police, the Metropolitan Police Department here in Washington, the FBI. There's been extensive planning here in the nation's capital. But more importantly, or as importantly, been in touch with uh, sheriffs and police chiefs all around the country, including Orange County, California, and Los Angeles. And we've shared intelligence and we've uh, worked together to make sure that we're prepared for any violence that should occur. How do you make sure that when you share things, it actually gets read, it gets delivered to where it's supposed to be? Because that was one of the problems we had with this last year. You know, the FBI was sending out some bulletins and then people weren't sure that they got to the places they needed to know quickly enough. Are you sure that when you send something down that it gets to where you want it to be? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think as I look back over the past several decades in particular, we've overly relied on 
on, on, on just posting products or sharing products through typical channels. What we've really done over the past year is in addition to improving our analysis and improving our ability to take intelligence uh, and communicate it in a uh, meaningful way, uh, in writing, uh, we've reestablished from the department's perspective those personal relationships with key law enforcement officials today. So, for example, I mentioned Sheriff Barnes in Orange County. Um, if if I have a concern about a specific threat uh, today, we will share that information through you know in writing uh, with the Orange County Fusion Center. But we'll also uh, pick up the phone and call. Uh, key officials in in the Orange County Sheriff's Office or at LAPD regarding that information and intelligence as well, not just to make sure that they've seen it, but so that we can hear from them what they may know about that specific threat as well. That's really a a big difference uh, with regard to what exists today uh, and what existed um, a year ago. Now, I remember, um, we, John, I, I remember uh, as a reporter covering way back 9-11 and, and uh, in the months and years after that, as you know, I'm sure, uh, there all kinds of different soft targets became obvious. You know, initially all the energy was poured into protecting airports, protecting air travel, and then terrorists figured out ways around some of that. And so law enforcement had to figure out ways around that, too. So I'm wondering whether or not there are, that those kind of lessons from 9-11 are applicable to this. They are, but you raise another really good point. Um, you know, with the threat, we've, I left the department last in, in 2014, uh, and I returned to the department in uh, January of, of 2021. The threat we face today is dramatically different than the one we faced just back in 2014. Uh, and the information and intelligence uh, we need to be able to detect emerging threats is different. The way we handle the threat is different. So taking in those lessons learned um, is important. But what's also important is that when, when the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI uh, work with state and locals, that we all are operating with a common understanding of the threat. And that was something else I saw that was really lacking uh, when I first came back in, in, in January of 2021, is that we, we weren't working off of a common understanding of the threat. We didn't understand how individualized it was. We didn't understand fully how much so online content um, was informing um, or fueling the violence that we were seeing, whether they were, whether they were mass casualty attacks or incidents at the Capitol. We understand that now. And law enforcement and Homeland Security organizations are, are using that common understanding and working together in a more effective way than they were a year ago. John, uh, I remember, and again, I want to go back to the 9-11 analogy, because I remember asking lots of people, I remember asking uh, Michael Chertoff at the time, who was heading, uh, I think, uh, uh, Homeland Security, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I would ask them what their, their, their nightmare scenario was, what really woke them up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat uh, after the 9-11 attacks. Let me ask that same question to you now in light of this new domestic threat. What keeps you up at night? You know, what I think about every day is that we are entering, you know, we're very focused right now, both in our discussion and nationally on the anniversary of January 6th. But from a law enforcement and security perspective, what keeps me up at night and I know is keeping up a number of my colleagues around the country is not just the anniversary of January 6th, but uh, the threat environment as we enter 2022. 
I mean, we're a country that's still highly polarized. Many people are angry. Um, our political discourse uh, has 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 turned into, in many respects, open hostility. Um, we are we we have an online or media media ecosystem that is saturated with disinformation uh, and content that's specifically placed there by foreign intelligence services, terrorist organizations, domestic extremists, thought leaders who are seeking to exacerbate. Um, our social tensions, the cracks in our society in order to, um, uh, in order to in, in sow discord, inspire acts of violence, um, undermine the credibility in our government. We continue to see a steady tempo of mass casualty attacks by angry, disaffected people who are inspired by the content that they're consuming online. And what really keeps me up at night is that the efforts of law enforcement to address these threats uh, can't really break to break through what what I would view as the politicalization and how we deal how we look at these threats. I mean, as I talk to my friends and neighbors and former colleagues, the way one interprets a threat facing the nation today um, is very often influenced by what side of the political spectrum uh, they view themselves as coming from. And until we ratchet down the intensity uh, of our uh, of this polarized political um, discourse in our country until we can really come to understand that the, the content that's being shared online and oftentimes being or at times being mimicked by public figures is actually um, contributing to the threat environment. Until we can acknowledge that we're all in this together, we are going to be continuing from a law enforcement perspective to deal with one mass casualty threat after another. And it's very difficult for law enforcement, as hard as we try, to prevent every mass casualty attack. Um, and so we can hold the line in the short term, but dealing with these broader societal issues is really what's going to address the threat that we're dealing with today. So until we all pull ourselves together, you guys are set to monitor things. You talked about the chatter before and how much of this is online. I was listening to a piece I think it was today or yesterday about how that's getting harder for you guys, because there's these apps that are encrypted. There's forums that can have like a little test or a vetting system to get you in. It's not just somebody on Facebook anymore saying, I'm going to go do this terrible thing and uh, follow me here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's actually a really interesting dynamic. Uh, on one hand, you have um, the, the playbook being used by terrorists and, and foreign intelligence services, uh, which is to pump out uh, conspiracy theories and, and disinformation and other content intended to incite and inspire attacks and, and, sh and having it spread as broadly as possible. They want it to be on public platforms. They want it to be uh, you know, uh, mimicked in, in, in mainstream media um, discussions. Um, but then at the same time, we're seeing increasingly those who are planning uh, those groups that are planning attacks, moving to encrypted platforms, we call it going dark. And it's very, very difficult for law enforcement uh, to, uh, to, to gather critical intelligence that can save people's lives when they can't break through the encryption that's present on some of these commercial applications. How do you balance this equation? Because on the one hand, we don't know, obviously, what we don't know. But on the other, in order to find out what we don't know, sometimes means crossing uh, the line uh, where people are concerned about their own privacy. How do you tackle that? Yeah, we wrestle with that 
literally on an hourly basis. I mean, our job in law enforcement, our job at the Department of Homeland Security is not to police thought. Um, and um, But it is our job to prevent acts of violence and protect our communities from violent attacks. Um, we work closely and on a daily basis uh, with our Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Office, with our Privacy Office, uh, with our Office of General Counsel. Uh, we want to make sure that, and this is why it's so important, as I mentioned before, that we have a really good understanding of the threat. Um, because it's with that understanding and through the partnerships with those offices that I just mentioned, that we can do what we need to do to gather information about threats uh, to, to our communities or to the nation, and at the same time, protect uh, the privacy rights uh, and, and constitutional rights of all Americans. And one other thing I would say on this is that, you know, I often get asked, well, what's a more significant threat? Is it white supremacist or, um, or people who subscribe to the Antifa concept? Um, you know, what, what ideology are you most concerned about? I really am ideologically agnostic. What I'm focused on is not what one believes, but whether one is going to take those beliefs and engage in violence and furtherance of those beliefs. Uh, so th that's another thing that we have to really instill within our investigators uh, or our, um, um, our, our analysts, which is don't get so wrapped around the axle about trying to figure out what the specific ideology someone adheres to figure out whether that person is preparing to commit an act of violence and stop the act of violence. John Cohen, Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis, Departments of Homeland Security. Thanks for talking to us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. I'm here with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The American gun industry, multi-billion dollar industry, does tend to breed polarization. More and more people, either firearm enthusiasts or highly critical of private citizens owning these kinds of weapons. Now, for much of his life, Ryan Bussey considered himself the former as a child, he dreamed of working in the gun industry, and today he remains passionate about hunting and the outdoors. But the enthusiasm informed now by the past experiences as an industry exec. After ending his 30-year career, he's peeling back the curtain on the whole industry and firearms, the new book, Gunfights, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Thanks for being with us, Ryan. So you write early on in this that you're responsible for selling millions of guns, basically. You played a role in this. Um, when you wrote that, how did you feel about that line when you were writing it versus how you might have felt, I don't know, 10 years ago when, when you were in this? Yeah, I think you. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I, I think you hit on an important point, and that is that, um, you know, still much of my career, most of what uh, I did in my career, I'm proud of. I am still a passionate gun owner. I believe in Americans' right to own guns. And so um, that line in the book is obviously an important one because it illuminates what I what I did with my career. What I'm not proud of is the industry, is is the way that the industry in which I once played a prominent role has changed so much and has, in my opinion now, has risk, um, perhaps even risk our democracy, but has really abandon responsibility. Um, and I, it, that, that scares me and, and that I'm worried about. Brian, was there a sign of a, sort of a, a road to Damascus moment for you where you just said, uh, wow, uh, this isn't right? There, well, there were a couple of them, actually. Um, there was one 
in in 2004, I gave a, a speech at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., where I was highly critical of some Bush administration policies, largely environmental and, conserva- and wildlife conservation policies having to do with um, Dick Cheney's energy plan. And I was vociferously attacked by the industry that I was a part of, even though in my mind, I was doing nothing but standing up for hunters in places where guns are used. The problem with my activities then was that I was attacking the wrong political party. So that was a point at which the scales kind of fell from my eyes and, you know, and, you know, in metaphoric terms, I'm like, oh, I get it. This, this is really just a cultural thing. You're trying to, you're trying to enlist people like me who care about hunting and conservation into this so that you can further your larger fundraising and political goals. So there was that moment. And then there was, and, and I decided to fight hard as hard as I could from inside the industry. I thought I could have more influence by doing, by being inside and being influential than I could from the outside. And I, and I did that and I detail many of those battles and little wars in my book. Um, and then in 2000, uh, 2019, uh, or sorry, 2017. The last one was uh, that I, the largest industry trade show, which is called Shot Show. It's a shooting hunting outdoor uh, trade show uh, called Shot. It's usually held in Las Vegas. That happened to correspond with the last or with the um, day of Donald Trump's. Uh, the last day of the show was Donald Trump's inauguration day, and essentially the entire trade show. And it's a monster trade show. It's one of the largest in the world. Was shut down as if it were a Catholic mass. There were flat screen TVs everywhere. Everybody stopped the audio for what came to be known as Trump's American carnage speech was piped in through the audio, something I'd never seen. There were many people from all sorts of countries, all the European countries, many Asian countries. So I, I don't know what, I don't know what the leadership of the firearms industry thought it was doing in in sort of imposing that sort of sameness on everybody. But that was definitely a watershed moment for me. So your audience for this who is? I mean, you write a book, you hope everybody reads it, right? So they can get an informed perspective on things. But is it people like you? Is it more moderate gun owners, the hunter types? I mean, who are you trying to, to speak to here? You know, I wrote my story, I think, because it's a good story, because I feel like I felt like I had something to say. And I, I didn't. It's probably this is probably like book, book writing 101, what not to do. And that is <laughs> I, I cared less about my audience than I did about about telling an important story. Turns out that it's it's got it's got a pretty broad audience of course i've got progressives who who may not understand guns and the first part of my book really goes into explaining i think a lot of people and i and i don't mean to be pejorative with you guys but coastal folks often don't understand how it is that um, people can become so enamored with guns or how they can become so intertwined with a culture and a good part of my book attempts to explain that um of course when you have something that culturally connected, it can also be badly, badly used. And the NRA did that. Those sorts of cultural connections can be twisted to form what becomes almost a cult, which is what I what I think we have in the United States now. So I've got a couple different sorts of audiences, the progressives who are who are really curious about this and want to understand how we got here. And then I've got um, moderates, gun owners, um, even lots of liberal gun owners who basically say, I've had it, you're right. We've been co-opted. We can't take this anymore. Those sorts of things. Did the book lose you friends or or get you into arguments with family members? Yes. <laughs> um, it, of course, it did. Uh, anything in our society, in our country, in our politics these days does this. I don't. I don't think you can open a bottle of wine without some sort of argument breaking out. Um, yeah, this is a topic that's you know very deeply held, and and I make the point in the book. I think I really believe. 
my experience tells me that this this whole gun NRA politics thing is at the very core of our national political discussion and division and ugly chasm. And so, um, yeah, there are a lot of friends I worked with in the industry for a long time who are almost family who, you know, we didn't agree politically, but they'll probably never talk to me again. I'm quite sure of that. So again, you've mentioned the intertwining with the politics and, and get recruits. There's something else too that you go into, which is how guns are, are marketed these days, because I get the sense that you're uncomfortable with some of this. It's some of the trade shows that, that you talk about being at and looking at these ads. I mean, take us through some of that. And then, then you also write that, you know, you were at a company that wasn't quite going that far, but the others have, and now it's just kind of off to the races. Yeah, it's much like our politics. And I, and I think that um, we often think as Americans that um, there's this robust system of legality and, and, you know, constitutional guarantees and everything that sort of upholds the way that we live. And that's not what I found. I think that the firearms industry perfected this breaking down of norms, which is what we all experienced in the last four or five years. That's actually more important than all the legality. The legality may actually be fragile. And so I experienced for a long time, the firearms industry would voluntarily not display. It wasn't that it was illegal or not, but they wouldn't display anything tactical, shoot them up games, um, AR-15s, assault rifles, things that were provocative. They didn't market in certain ways. They called guns things like the 629 and the Model 700 and my uh, gun that I have, the Kimber Custom Classic. Um, that all began to change as our norms started to break down and, and responsibility was abandoned. And the gun that was used in Sandy Hook um, by a troubled young man was marketed as a, a massive uh, campaign called the Get Your Man Card Back campaign. And it was the idea was after you bought and used one of these rifles, you had your man card back. You could even send you could even send a request in and they would mail you a literal man card. And Adam Lanza used that gun in Sandy Hook. Um, today we have guns, um, no longer the 629 or the Custom Classic. We have a gun that's being marketed aggressively now in the shooting industry called the Urban Super Sniper. It's an AR-15, a very tricked out AR-15. I don't think you have to, to you know, use a lot of imagination to guess at what we might be encouraging people to do with an Urban Super Sniper. I don't see how that's responsible. I don't think it's any, you know, it's not an accident that Kyle Rittenhouse was developed as a customer. Um, he was marketed to and developed. And so I go into a lot of these sorts of stories in my book. Ryan, you mentioned earlier you called it a cult. How would you define uh, the cult? And is it a cult that is going to spread outside the U.S.? Or is there something particular about American culture that keeps it confined to our shores? Well, it is certainly confined to our shores, I believe. And we have, you know, we have the Second Amendment, Um a freedom and a right, which I'm happy that we have. I'm I'm glad I use guns. I, I shoot every chance I get. I hunt and shoot with my boys and my dad and our family. And so I'm glad for that. But um, as, as John Adams noted, and I'll, I'll paraphrase a quote of his, somebody who put together this whole constitutional system, he noted that the constitution was developed for moral people. And he said, it's wholly inadequate for any other sort of person. And I think that's what we're facing now is this, we, we can have rights, but our, but our balance between rights and responsibilities are just badly out of whack. Um, and, and I think there's a reason why the most you know, frightening domestic terror groups in our country all are centered around gun rights. The Proud Boys, it's a gun group. The Oath Keepers, it's a gun group. People who marched on January, marched on January 6th, a year ago tomorrow, um, they had a couple different types of flags, Trump and American flags, and then they had come and take an AR-15 flags. It's a gun cult. Um, 
this is out of control. We've just abandoned responsibility and, and we've, we've got to get back to, you know, we've got to understand a warning from a framer of the constitution. Uh, this, this whole system is wholly inadequate if we're not a moral responsible people. So we get these these events, we have these mass shootings, and then we get the calls for gun control, and it gets termed, you know, common sense gun reform. Is is there a thing? What does that look like to you? Because the criticism from the other side to the industry is, why won't you guys give an inch, give something? Yeah, I think that, um, I think what we're really talking about is responsibility, right? And I like to liken this to a speed zone at, at, a, at a school. Um, we like to drive. We want to drive. We may even need to get to work. We may be late, but that doesn't mean we think it's responsible to drive through the school zone at 90 miles an hour. Um, also, we don't call it socialist, commie, overreach, whatever, when we impose a 25 mile an hour school zone through the through the school, you know, th- or speed limit through the school zone. That's called responsibility, um, and we have we have to find that again. And just and just because we need responsible regulations. Um, we need voluntary responsible, and then we need responsibility, and then we need regulations as well. Um, th- those are responsible things. They're, I don't call them gun control. I call that responsibility. Um, I, don't know, I don't have all the policy answers. I just know that we have to find a sense of responsibility again, um, and, and that, that means voluntary and regulatory. Is there any part of you that regrets writing the book? No. Um, it, it was difficult. Yes. Uh, staying up late at night, drinking too many glasses of wine and then getting up way too early and drinking too many cups of coffee like authors are supposed to do. So I guess I played that role. Yeah, I, I suppose <laughs> some of that wasn't the most healthy thing, but it got to a point where I, I had to tell this story. Um, nobody else from the firearms industry has ever written a book or told a story because there's a police state enforcement that ensures that no opinions like this ever get out. And so um it, it was bottled up inside me. It had to come out, so I don't, I don't regret it. Ryan Bussey, the new book, Gunfights, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Ryan, thanks for talking to us. This has been In-Depth for today. Back tomorrow.